Well, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We have a few weeks before we start back in Romans. And so I want to relook at one of the choice letters that our Lord wrote to the, to the church in Revelation. Uh, we may look at more than, than one, but we'll definitely look at this one this morning. As I was reading this past week, it, it caught my caught my attention, and this will also prepare us for our winter and spring series on Sunday nights, in Romans chapter 7, and moving into chapter 8 on Sunday morning, but then on Sunday nights, we, we have a preaching series, and that will begin uh, along with, with Romans as well, and so on January 21st, we'll, we'll begin what we're calling the, the Millennium Series, which is uh, a focus on understanding what the Bible says about how everything's going to end, um, eschatology, the eschaton in Greek, which means the, the last things. And several of you asked if, uh, if I would do this after I preached from Daniel 7 and about perilous times, right whenever the war in Israel broke out. And so that's what we're, we're going to be doing in the, in the spring. And I think it's going to be very enlightening and encouraging at the same time. And so what we're learning here in and uh, the first part of Revelation will, will help set us up um, for that. Have you ever received a letter from somebody uh, that, was, that was important? Uh, I can remember getting a letter from the Secretary of State uh, of, of West Virginia. Yes, they actually do have Secretary of State in, in West Virginia, and it looked very official. There was a seal there. And uh, the man actually signed it. It wasn't computer generated. I don't even know if they had computers back then, but, but he actually signed it, or at least it looked like him, maybe a secretary, I don't know. But I thought I was somebody very special whenever I received this, this letter. I used to send this out for perfect attendance in school or things like that. And I remember showing others, and I remember putting it in a very special place. I mean, there's something gratifying about getting a card or a letter from someone, isn't there? Uh, in fact, we re I think we enjoy communication of any kind, especially in the form of a personal greeting. You might go all the way back or think all the way back to grade school as an evidence of how uh, you, you pass notes back and forth. How many of you have the most embarrassing moment that includes the teacher taking the note and reading it out loud? I, they probably don't do that anymore because of accuse of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, being accused of, of something, I'm not sure. But they also spanked us in grade school whenever, whenever I was there, and they don't do that anymore either. We, we, we send each other cards. We, we just got a pile of them, and they're wonderful. We live looking at the pictures and actually getting them. We like uh, having things like that on special occasions, birthday cards, postcards when we're traveling, Christmas letters, uh, that keep our families informed, and, and we just enjoy sending and receiving that kind of communication. Now, you're going to date yourself, but how, do, how many of you remember the iconic You've Got Mail announcement from AOL? Some of you have no idea what AOL is or dial-up. Some of you do. Um, now you have social media sites that update instantly. You have phones. You have watches that keep real-time data, and they ding to notify if you've got a snap or whatever it is, and you have a new piece of information to, to look at. And it's not a newsflash to you. Most of it's not new. 
they, the news says the same thing over and over and over. They just repackages it, uh, repackage it 30 times a, a, a day. Um, and, and marketers understand exactly what I'm saying this morning. And they use that desire for a personal message to launch a social media craze, taking real-time communication beyond the workplace. And it worked, didn't it? I mean, how many times do you check your device in a day? Should I ask how many times you've checked it since you've been in church this morning? I know, I know, your Bible is on your phone. You just have to go through Fox News or Facebook to get to it sometimes. But that's just the way that it is these days. And all of those methods, the one thing that they have in common is that they send and receive communication, and we want to do that. The only messages that we don't like giving are bills. Uh, we don't like getting our bills. I think you should think of the Bible in a, in a similar way. Maybe not exactly the same way. But, but the Bible is a message. It's a personal message from God to, to you, to, to the world. The bill that you owe, you'll never get from the Lord if you, if you come to Jesus Christ because Christ has already paid the bill. The communication from God and no bill because Christ has paid the bill. And some of those messages from the Lord are, are general truths. They're still a personal message from the Lord. But some of them are more specific and they're, they're more direct, like the message that we have in front of us this morning. And I want to look at a very specific message. And it's the first of Christ's messages to the seven churches in Revelation in, in chapter 2. These messages are the first of, of a number of sevens in the book of Revelation. And we preached through the book of Revelation before. There will be seven royal messages here to the church, followed by seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then seven bowl judgments. And if we were to go back and read chapter 1, which we won't do this morning, which, which sets these, these letters up, you would see John has a vision of the exalted Christ, and the Lord commissions him to do something. He he commissions him to encourage his church. And while Jesus is exalted in, the, in heaven, as this vision describes, he wants his church and us to know that he's present with us on the earth. The vision of Christ leads to this communication that Christ is, is with us and present on the earth. He wants the church to know that he sees their need that he's provided for their need. And so he'll send them this word in these seven messages that, that, that follow. And, and John has been given this message from God to write to, to these churches. I mean, if you will, he's the service provider, but the, but the mail is from the Lord Jesus himself. He specifically addresses it to a church and from Christ. And the messages are addressed to each church personally with specific instructions. But, but as a whole, Jesus is, is saying with this new communication that he's not forgotten and he's not forsaken his church. And remember, Revelation is one of the, the last letters that we have in the New Testament. Not just because it's, the, it, it's written about the last things, because it's, it's, the, it's the latest of the letters. This is around 90, early 90s A.D. Jesus died 33, around 33 A.D., you have Paul writing his pastoral epistles and his prison epistles in the 60s. And so this is even 30 years after the Apostle Paul is dead or is facing death. And he's writing even to 2 Timothy, uh, mid-60s. And, and, and the Lord is reminding his churches that, that he's not forgotten them. 
and he's not forsaken them. So he has a personal message for them. And the Lord does that for us as well, doesn't he? he? He reminds us, even after long periods of time, that he's not forgotten us and he hasn't forsaken us. He's aware of what they're going through, and he's in their midst. Uh, look at verse 19 of, of chapter 1. I mean, John is told to write about Christ's present ministry, Christ's future judgment, and Christ's unending glory. Look, look at verse 19 of Revelation chapter 1. Is therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will, which will take place after these things. Uh, write, write about these three things, John. The, the, the things that are Christ's present ministry, the, the seven edicts uh, of the church, Christ's future judgment, what will be in the tribulation, and then Christ's unending glory, all things new. He's making all things new. And at the very end of the vision... The seven stars and the seven candlesticks, which he's going to be talking about in these letters, are, are identified. I'll give you what at verse 20 of the end of chapter 1. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here... People say, well, I can't understand Revelation because it's full of symbolism. It does have symbolism, but the symbolism is identified in, in most places. And even whenever it's not, you can figure out exactly what the Lord's talking about. You might not know specifically what the, 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 these things flying out of the abyss are, are, uh, 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 actually are whenever they're describing them in all of this, this symbolic language, but you know they're demonic, you know they're demons. The angels are Christ's servants at specific locations. And the lampstands, he says, are his churches. So he's going to write to, to servants at specific churches, and he's going to write to specific churches. And the letters are messages of encouragement to persevere. Persevere right now in the midst of, uh, of, of life. And the encouragement is, I have not forgotten you. I am, I am with you. And, and the first one is to a very prominent church in the, in the port city of, uh, of Ephesus. And Zach read that to us this morning, these first seven verses. Ephesus was a huge and important city. If you've done the uh, Footsteps of Paul tour, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It contained between 250 and 500,000 people during, during Paul's day. It's larger than Lynchburg. It still boasts of some of the world's most preserve ruins of the ancient world. But the two most important places were the Roman theater and the temple of Diana. The theater held over 25,000 people and was filled with, with, with wealth. You remember in, uh, in Acts 19, when a lot of people in Ephesus came to Christ, that they, they burnt all their articles of magic? Well, uh, w when they destroyed all of those things, it, it was estimated that it was worth over 50,000 pieces of silver. Just when some people in the city came to Christ, to give you an idea of how wealthy the city was. But it was the spiritual wealth that Christ is concerned about. Uh, the outline of the letter is, is very straightforward. It's Christ's message to, to, a, to, a, loveless, to a loveless church. Christ's message to a, to a loveless church. There's the church's messenger, the church's condition and then the, the church's cure. Verse 1, To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, 
Here's the messenger of the church, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And here's the church's condition, beginning in verse 2. I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance. And he goes on and describes the church's condition. And at the end of verse, uh, verse 5, you, you see the, the, or at the beginning of verse 5, I should say, you, you, see the, you see the church's cure. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds are at, at first. And he describes that through the end of the, the letter. Each letter has its own distinctive characteristics. If you would read all of them, there's an introduction, which is a description of Christ. There's then a list of achievements, things that the Lord praises the church for, followed by words of encouragement, rebuke, counsel, and warning. And the introduction presents the sender of the message. And here is the church's messenger. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden candlesticks says this. Now, if you received a Christmas present, hopefully you did, hopefully you weren't that bad, you had a label on it usually, and it says to and from. How would you like to get a message addressed this way? To the church of Timberlake Baptist Church, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's what we have in the Bible, but, but this actually has the Lord's name inserted. Would that bring anticipation or anxiety? Well, I think it would probably depend upon whether you were walking with God or not. The message here begins with a to and a from, and it's packed with meaning. I mean, to the angel of the church. That's what he says. Who is that? Who is it to? Who is the angel of the church? There's been all kinds of discussion about who the angels are. Are they literal angels? As in each church, each church has an angel assigned to it. Are they the messengers of the church? As in the lead elder who would then communicate the message to, to the congregation? Are they, are they a symbol of the church personified? Uh, the word angelos is, is used both ways in, in the Bible. It's used as a literal angel, and it's also used as human messengers, like in Matthew 11.10, Mark 1.2, and Luke 7.24. I actually think it's the lead elder of the church that he's going to receive. He's writing to, to whoever is presiding over the church, the overseer of the church, which then is able to communicate that and exhort the church to obey what, what Christ says. But frankly, what matters more is how this messenger is presented. Verse 1, he is in the right hand of the one who, who, who speaks. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And we're already told that the seven stars are the, these, these pastors, if you will, of, of the church. And the words uh, uh, of him, or thus says him, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, is, is similar. It's the same idea in the Old Testament of thus saith the Lord. Pay attention. This is something that God is specifically saying to you, and in general. It's like in Amos 1.6. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not remove its, its punishment. And see, there's nothing new under the sun. 2,500 years ago, the Bible's talking about problems in Gaza, just like problems going on today. And the messenger of the church is under the authority of the one who's speaking. And the one who's speaking is God. He, he's in his right hand. 
The message is from the presiding and present Christ to the one presiding over the members of the church. And the whole church is in, is in Christ's care. There are two important participles that, that's used in this, in this introduction. He holds, meaning to hold something authoritatively. The messengers are in his control. They're, they're in his grip. And he walks. He's present. He walks among them. He's present. He's aware. He's presiding over his church, beholding his messenger in his right hand. In any man of God, any pastor, any elder worth his salt, <clears throat> worth you, you following, should be in that condition, in that position, held in the right hand of God, under God's care, presiding over the church, with Christ holding him in his hand, and Christ is present in his church. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. He reigns over his church, governing its every circumstance. And God is personally among the people of his church, providing for their every need. And this picture of Christ among his churches in Revelation intensifies, as the vision intensifies. Look back at chapter 1, verse 13. Watch how this builds. Chapter 1, verse 13, it says, He's in the middle of the lampstands. He's in the middle of them. Look at verse 16. He's now holding them in his hand. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. He's in the middle of them, and now he holds them. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, he's, he walks among them. He's moving with them. And in Revelation 19, which we won't turn there, when the church reappears after the tribulation, church is prominent in the first part of Revelation, the church disappears during the tribulation, and reappears at the marriage supper of the, of the Lamb and then the return of Christ, you see the church celebrating the marriage feast in the very presence of the Lord. And then they return with the Lord in, in judgment. Here he walks among them, which comes from a, the promise of, that, that God made to Israel. Leviticus 26.12 I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Um, as God's presence was in the midst of Israel, they would become like the Lord. His presence was, was among you. It's the, and, and the basis of the relationship, he was among them because he was their God. And that would bring about transformation. His presence, them being, God being their God, would make them his people. I mean, this is the message of the whole of Scripture. I mean, God was separated from man in the garden because of sin, and then he chooses Israel to be a special people, and he'll live in their midst. By faith, Israel would worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they would no longer be his enemies, but God's people. And so what or who you're becoming like is a question that you have to ask yourself. You become like whatever you worship, the Bible says. You're transformed in, into the image of the one that, that, that you worship. So as you look at your life, what are, what are you becoming like? Who are you becoming like? What attributes do you see in, in your life? 
Uh, to find the answer, you look at your life as a whole. You look at your pursuits. You look at your desires, your speech, your, your actions. I mean, do you see Christ in those things? Do you see Christ in your pursuits? you see Christ in your desires? you see Christ in your speech? Do you see Christ in your, in your actions? Do you see him in these things? If you don't see him in these things, then, then check what you're worshiping. That's what Peter means whenever he says, be holy for I am holy. I mean, it's a command for sure. But the point is, God wants you to become like him. I mean, in fact, that's something he promises that he will actually do. He will conform you to the image of his son. But but that's the journey we're on. That's the path that we're on. We, We come to Christ, our sins are forgiven, we're placed in him, and then we become like him. He's laid hold of you. And Christ is reminding his church about their, their relationship. He knows them and can guide them to holiness. And so he gives a diagnosis and cure to, to press toward that. Here's the second part of the letter, the church's condition. Look at what at verse 2. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And, and, and you put to the test... Those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. I mean, here is the first part of Christ's description of the church. What's the condition of the church? You want this letter? Well, it depends on your condition. Well, what's the condition of the church? He he moves now to the diagnosis of the church's condition. What's he going to say about the church? And he begins with, I know your deeds. Wow, if you don't know Christ, that's a, those, are, those are horrific words, fearful words. I know what no one else knows. I know your deeds. The deeds and the works here are not so much individual works of the church, but, but the overall manner of life. I, I know overall this is what marks your church. God knows how we live. He knows what no one else does, and we're exposed before him. He sees the good. He sees the bad. The same thing for a congregation. And he begins with commending them for the good things that he sees. In verse 2, he sees their diligence, he sees their doctrine, and he sees their discernment. Notice what he says here. Their diligence, their doctrine, and their discernment. He says, I know your toil and your endurance. Two words. I know your deeds and your toil, and your perseverance. Now he starts describing the deeds, toil and your perseverance. You put those two words together, it's the active and passive side of your walk. You're you're actively doing one thing, bearing up under another. You're toiling and you're enduring. The Ephesian church had, had the mark of toiling to the point of exhaustion. This was not a lazy church. It was a working church. They'd worked hard for Christ. They'd labored for the gospel in in the city. In fact, this church is part of the who's who in ministry of the day. I don't know what church comes to your mind when you think of of, of big churches, churches that are prominent. But Ephesus would have come to your mind if you were a believer in in this day. I mean, it had Paul, Timothy, and John as their pastors. I mean, talk about a pedigree. I mean, Elwood McQuaid and Jim Alley are good men, but that is a pedigree. Paul and Timothy and John. Acts 10 says that the church was a mission hub for the entire region. 
I mean, when Paul ministered there for about three years, the church was so effective, the Bible says that all of Asia heard the gospel coming out of this church. It was a training center for pastors. Priscilla and Aquila brought the gospel there and trained Apollos there, and then he was sent out. Timothy was instructed when he pastored Ephesus to seek out men who were faithful, faithful men in the church at Ephesus and commit the truth to them and that they were to teach others also. The church trained men and sent them out. Titus was one of them. The church was also successful. We already talked about how it stirred up the, the, the issue with the silversmith that caused a riot whenever people came to Christ in the city. I mean, this part of Ephesus is, is what we model after at Timberlake. I mean, a missions hub, training pastors, sending missionaries to needy places. I mean, this is a good church. And in the midst of that, the church patiently endured, it says. It, they, they didn't just work, they endured. They held the line. They didn't cave to the pressure of society. They were doctrinally sound. And because of that, they were discerning. Look, look at verse 2. I know your deeds, I know your work, your toil, and I know you're, you're, you're not caving, you're, you're persevering, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. They're doctrinally sound, and they're, they're, they're a discerning church. That's what that means. Those are two of the most needed characteristics for the church today. They go together to be doctrinally sound and discerning. I mean, you can't bear with... He says that this church cannot bear with those who are evil morally. Look at verse 6. I mean, he even comes back to this after he corrects them. Verse 6. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Pretty strong words from the Lord. You know, God hates things. He says, the church, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which was a heretical people. Christian heresy. He says, which I also hate. And to be, you put, them, you, you put to test those who call themselves apostles, those who call themselves messengers of Christ, those who stand in pulpits and say that they're followers of Christ, but they're not. You, you put those men to the test. You don't just let them stay there and fleece the poor and mislead people. They're not, and you found them to be false. You've tested those who call themselves apostles, and you can see that they're not. You have the ability to find out that they're false. They can bear up under the labor of the gospel... They endured the pressure of the world, but they could not bear false teaching or immorality, which was also a mark of the Nicolaitans. The church was able to discern moral and theological error. Wow. May there be more of those churches in our world today. And can you do that? Can you tell truth from error, and can you identify sin? I'm not talking about, you know, the big ones. That's obvious from the culture's standpoint. But even the big ones that used to be very obvious have changed even from the culture, right? That's creeping into the church. The only way that you'll be able to discern error and identify sin is by making the Bible your sole authority and then studying it hard. That's it. You don't need to exegete the culture. You don't need to do a deep dive on what everybody's doing and watching and all of those things. That's that's just not going to get you where you need to go. You need to make the Bible your sole authority, and you need to study it hard. 
You're able to discern bad doctrine by knowing good doctrine. Do you know good doctrine? If you don't know good doctrine, then then you're not going to be able to discern the subtle ways of Satan where he brings angels of light and sticks them in pulpits. You may not think you need to know much depth in your life, but just live a while and you'll think otherwise. Let an inexplicable tragedy come into your life and try to make sense out of it where God was without knowing Scripture. See how far you get with theological pipe stems instead of steel. When your child tells you that a friend's trying to convince them to do something sinful and they want you to explain why it's not sinful, your answer, well, the Bible says so, is going to be followed with where? Show me where. And if you don't know, then the influence of that friend might be even greater than the influence of a parent. Persevere in labor, under pressure, and in the truth. That's the, that's the praise here, the condition of the church. But as you do that, as you do all of those things as a church and as an individual, don't lose your devotion for Christ and people. Look at verse 4. He goes on and talks about their condition. Probably the verse that you know by heart from this letter. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. He confronts them for lacking love. And it's probably one of the most well-known verses in the, in, the, in the seven letters. And this verse in and of itself has actually been used by people who deceive and who twist the Bible for, for their own purposes to say something different than even what it says. I mean, the church was laboring. They were absolutely orthodox. But they had allowed their hearts to leak out to the love of God, which can happen very subtly without knowing it. Robert Mount said, Every virtue carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. Every virtue carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. I mean, the desire for sound teaching and diligent testing to root out the imposters can have a deadening effect if you're not careful. I mean, dealing with sin and sinful men can make you cynical. And you can begin to think, I mean, no one's following God. I'm just going to tell them this, and they're not even going to listen anyway. Or I'm the only one that is left, like Elijah. And when you get like that, it it deadens the ends of your heart. And doubt uh, for the Lord and for His promises creep in. Or if you get so focused on doing it right, you can forget the reason that you're doing it to begin with, which is love for God and for people. And when that happens, you you can abandon the, the fresh, unsuspicious, fearless love that you once had for God and shared with others. I mean, one commentator said, true love of God involves fervent hate of what counterfeits or distorts the truth but it doesn't lack a desire to see the benefits of salvation extended to others. And you can do the both at the same time. It's only possible to do that with the Lord in you. I mean, it's easy to hate what, what's wrong and to point out what's wrong in everybody else, but to hold both of those. On the flip side, I mean, it might be easy for you to, to love people and be compassionate because you know what it's like to be there, but to hold both of those two things together like a north and south pole, and and, and they're both operating. One doesn't triumph over the other. You you hate what is evil, 
and yet you desire at the same time, you love those people at the same time, and to see them come to Christ. I mean, that's not possible. That's something supernatural. Not possible in and of yourselves. And we should hate those who are enemies of God like David did in Psalm 139, 21. Listen to what David said in Psalm 139, verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. I mean, how can David say that? How can that be in the Bible and the Bible say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of the the holy justice of the Lord and the love of the Lord. Both of those attributes are are not in competition with one another. And they won't be in competition in your heart either. You will loathe and hate what dishonors the Lord and what harms other people at the same time, longing for people, loving people, and to see them come to Christ. And the church at Ephesus had allowed a coldness and a dryness to creep over their hearts. They'd not walked away from their faith. They'd not stopped serving. They were very adept in the truth. They could smell error a mile away, but they were loveless. And therefore, they were lifeless. And Christ's message is good works and pure doctrine are not adequate substitutes for a rich relationship with, with the Lord. Notice the adjective that he uses here. Verse 4, but I have this against you that you've left your first love. First love, it's an adjective. You didn't just say you, you left love, you left your first love. Now, I think it's the love that you experienced initially. I say I think because it's either the deeds that you, that, that you, you did, the loving deeds toward others, or it's the, it's, it's the, it's the unction, it's the desire that, 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 that was within you. And obviously I think you don't have to pull those things apart. It's the love that you experienced initially when you first came to Christ, when you knew you were forgiven and you knew you were free. You loved God and you loved everybody else too. I mean, when you first came to Christ, did you judge anyone? You didn't think anything about any of that. You were just happy to be forgiven and free. Oh, yeah, and you admitted it to everybody. Oh, let me tell you, I I am a wretch, 100%, no problem. You're not going to get me having any problem telling you that. You were clumsy. You didn't know anything. You stumbled over the right way to do things. You didn't care whether you knew where to find it in the Bible. You, you didn't put on any pretense. You, it didn't matter. But the one thing that did matter is that you were in love with Jesus Christ. You, you loved him. And it came out of you. You remember that? If you've never tasted that. It's the best thing, the best thing ever. And if you have tasted that and forgotten that, what that's like, that's what this letter's about. That's what God's calling the church back to here. It's what God's calling you back to. And it's possible for it to grow richer as well. Not just first, where you, you go back to, to, these, to these beginning, uh, you know, pangs of, of, of love, but... But that love can grow richer, like in a marriage. First love can deepen into an abiding and enduring love. And here's where the error, people use this verse in error. I mean, the temptation is to think that truth and love are mutually exclusive. Like, like you either have to be loving and not filled with the truth. 
or truth-filled and not loving. Like you, you listened to me describe this this morning about when you first came to Christ, and you said, yes, yes, I, I want to do that. I lost that. And the problem was I got too wrapped up into going to church, too wrapped up in serving, too wrapped up in studying your Bible. I need to stop focusing on the truth and start focusing on love and people. That's not what God's saying here at all. I've heard people actually say that about sound churches. Oh, you guys are just too, you guys are just too wrapped up in the truth. I mean, the Bible is just too important over there. What you need to do is just love people. I mean, I understand how stupid that sounds. I mean, it's, it's contrary to Scripture. In fact, he's going to rebuke Thyatira and Pergamum for doing that very thing. Truth and love go together. God doesn't uh, say throw off diligence, doctrine, and discernment here. He says add fervent love for those things. Return to that. I mean, God spoke to apostate Israel in Jeremiah 2.2 and says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. Now, let me read that again and listen to it. God spoke to apostate Israel in Jeremiah 2.2, and he says this. This is the Lord saying, I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember the devotion that you had when I first became your God. And what did that devotion look like? How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. I mean, it's this picture of a bride just enamored with her husband, in love, following him. And the Lord says, I remember that. And he's remembering that now that they're apostate and they're not paying attention to him. And God's saying to the church at Ephesus, come back there. And he might be saying that to you this morning. Come back to the very core of walking with Christ, which is, which is love for God. And the, and the Bible says love for Christ and others is the most distinctive mark of a Christian. John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I mean, Christ. Love is Christ in you. For God is love. Love is motivation for serving and giving and caring. Love is oil. In the relationships between sinners, love is a, is a wet blanket that ex- extinguishes the flames of offense or irritation. It's what you throw over the offenses of, of, of others. It's not that people in the church are not going to offend you. It's not that I might not offend you. I would hate to do that, but I might. That's not the point of a church. <laughs> The church doesn't mean that that sin doesn't happen inside the church. The the point is that that we're honest about it, and we apply the Bible to it. You throw the blanket of love over that whenever somebody offends you. What's the love look like? Well, it gives. It gives. You can give and not love, but you cannot love and not give. It dies, love dies, it dies to self when everything else in you wants to be exalted and vindicated and protected. It dies to wants and desires. It humbles, it stoops. I mean, Christ's love condescends to us, he comes to us. He doesn't call us to come up here, he comes to us first. He came to us while we were yet sinners, reached down, it reaches down to other people. It initiates It says, I'm sorry first. It seeks reconciliation first. I mean, you realize that if God had not sought to reconcile with you, you would never be reconciled to God. He initiates that reconciliation. It's not only if the other person makes a move. It provides, it seeks, love risks. Love's risky. It risks your life. 
so that you may gain his. It thinks, it says, and does good. Love's not an emotion. It bears fruit, which is why you can't separate it from laboring and persevering and discerning. But if you have left the fresh, fresh glow of love for God, if you have if you allowed that, if you've allowed that to, to fade, Jesus has the cure, which is the third section of this letter. Here's the church's cure, beginning in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds that you did at first. There's one of the reasons why one interpretation says that remembering your first love is the deeds that you did for others at first. But I don't think you can separate the two. He says, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I mean, here's the solution. For a church like that or you like that, remember, repent, and do love works. Do works. Three commands. Remember is in the present tense, and repent and do are in the aorist. First he says, let your mind continually go back. Present tense. Uh, Remember continually. Let your mind continually go back to the early days when you knew what it was like to be washed clean and find Christ. Constantly go back to the fountain of the gospel. Keep remembering the gospel even as you discern and even as you work. Keep remembering that. Memory can be a powerful thing, can't it? You ever been driving and heard a song that caused you to remember something from some specific time and feelings just flooded you? I used to have that problem after I was saved. Song would come on the radio, and that song would immediately take me back to something I was doing with my friends and sin or otherwise. I'd have to push it aside. Memory can be powerful. It can be a powerful thing. Luke 15, 17 it says the prodigal son does, does exactly what Jesus commands here. You remember the story of the prodigal. It says, he came to his senses when he remembered that his father's hired servants were well cared for. Here he is in his sin, away from God, in the, just in the, the, the mess that he's made, and he starts thinking, he starts remembering what it was like when he was in fellowship with the Lord what it was like when he was in his father's house, and he remembers how the hired servants were well cared for. He came to his senses. And as you keep remembering the gospel and what it did, he says, then repent and do. And there's the aorist. Keep remembering and then, then repent and do. It means to make a decisive break. Not just keep doing it, do it. He says, bear in mind the loving relationship with the Lord you once enjoyed and make a clean break with your present manner of life, the way John MacArthur puts it. Make a clean break. I mean, to repent means to take an active step. It's a result of of an action that comes from a change of thinking. And when you repent of sin, you you realize it is sin, and and then you, you go about stopping it. I mean, our culture likes to use the phrase, to struggle with something. I'm really struggling with that. And if, you, if what you mean by that is, is that, that you're fighting to kill it, then, then the struggle is just and it's good. And there are things that the Bible calls besetting sins, but I'm afraid sometimes it, it means to excuse, uh, it means an excuse to keep doing it and not take it seriously. I'm struggling with immorality. 
Well, stop it. Stop putting yourself in the position where you can, where you can fall. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, don't take a job in a liquor store. That's pretty dumb, isn't it? Repent means to flee. It means to stop. It means to cease. It means to turn. You kill, meaning destroy the works of darkness. You see, sometimes that our problem is, is not that we can't overcome the sin. It's we don't want to do what is necessary to, to get there. Repentance is a radical redirection of someone's entire life. Someone's entire life. Then that's where the work comes in. It's hard work. Let me tell you something wonderful, though. While the work can be hard, especially at first, there is no work that God calls you to do that Christ does not help you with. He is like a faithful friend that lifts up the heavy end of something. You ever, had, you ever went to pick up something on your own and you didn't realize how heavy it was until you started, you started burying it and, and, and somebody sees you struggling and comes along and helps you? That, that's Christ. Isaiah says, a smoking flax he will not quench. I think that the picture of Christ's help is, 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 is beautifully seen there in Isaiah. A smoking flax he will not quench. You know what a smoking flax is? It's a wick on an oil lamp that was supposed to have a flame. It was supposed to give light. It's like it's supposed to have a, 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 a flame here, and it doesn't. It no longer does that. It just smolders. And when it does, it lets off an irritating stench. It stinks, and it, it's smoky. It's not serving its purpose. And when you have, when you have a, a, like a stick in a campfire, or you blow out a candle on a birthday cake, and when that comes in our direction, it irritates us. And, and if something like that won't, won't burn, it's good for nothing. We want to snuff it out. Get that out of here. Says Christ won't do that. No matter how unuseful and smoldery we become, we're never an irritant to Him. Not only will He not cast us away, but He patiently nurtures the wick, fans the flame, fans it back to usefulness, blows on it, believe and light it again. That's what Galatians 6 1 and 2 says we're to do with others. We're to restore one another, meaning to usefulness like the Lord does for us. But don't deceive yourself. Someone who has truly repented will, will try to pick up the object. They'll look to Christ to help the, pick up the heavy end, but they'll at least pick it up. Someone who's truly repented will eventually bear fruit. I mean, your life will be different from repentance and changing your actions. And if you'll not repent, then the Lord will love you enough to bring about consequences. Look at verse 5. He says, Therefore, remember from where you're fallen and repent and do the deeds at first, or else I am coming to you. Now, in the beginning, it's a wonderful thing that Christ is in the midst of his church. We like that part. But there's some ominous words here. I'm coming to you. When you're not right with the Lord, you don't want the Lord to come to you when you want to keep, continue in it. You want to stay far away. But he says, I'm coming to you. I love you enough even in your sin. I'm going to come to you in your sin. And I will remove your, your lampstand out of its place unless 
You repent. The severity and the hope. I mean, here's the consequence. You've habitually disobeyed. He says, if you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless, unless you repent. I mean, to remove the lampstand means their status as a church would change, for one. He removed them as a church that bears his name. He removed them as the usefulness, uh, the, the church's usefulness in the world. And then also they could be treated like apostate Israel whenever the judgment comes. They would be visited by Christ, not in his second coming, but, but by his ever-present power, and he would remove them from use, which happens to churches all the time. Many die a timely death. And I'm not being mean when I say this. Some of them need to stay dead if they won't repent. And then God just raises up new ones with faithful people and faithful pastors in them. And, and, and the point is twofold. If you're a sinner, if you are kicking against the grace and the mercy of the Lord, God is so gracious and so long-suffering that He will pursue you, He will come to you. The very consequences that you have in your life may be for the very reason to draw you back. It may not be. The struggle is whenever you're in sin, you don't know. Your conscience is inflamed. You're, you don't know whether you're right with the Lord. You struggle with assurance because you know what you're doing is wrong. And, and, and the minute that you, you get out of that, then you're able to see things clearly. But that's where it begins. You have to, you have to stop that. You have to come to the Lord. Then he'll, he'll assure you and show you what, what you need to do to, to fix it. But it begins with that, that repenting. Turning from where you're going and where you've been, turning to the Lord in, in, in humble repentance, saying, help me. But he also has a limit. Here's the severity part. If you're lost, if you're a believer, he'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, ever. No matter how bad you are or how bad it gets. Jesus Christ has committed himself to you before the foundation of the world. If he will kill his son on your behalf, you think he's going to forsake you in the midst of your sin? If his son died for your sin, you think he's going to forsake you in the midst of your sin? Now, you could get to the point where he takes you to heaven. But if you're outside of Christ, there can come a point where the Lord gives you what you desire. You stiff-arm the Lord, 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 and at some point the Lord's stiff arm's not there. They, no restraint. What happens whenever there's no restraint? For a sinful heart, it just runs, just keeps right on going, and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. That's what happens in Romans 1. Why let that happen? There's nothing that's compared to the love of Christ. Look at verse 7. Who has an ear? Let him hear. Again, another appeal. <laughs> hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's a promise. To him who overcomes, perseveres, listens, humbly allows the Lord to help him, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. There's a promise. It's a plea to hear, to listen along with a promise if you do. 
But you must listen. And you must heed the Lord's, the Lord's words. And if you do, He will fulfill His promise to you. And what a beautiful picture pledged here to those who overcome. Christ will grant free access to the tree of life in paradise. That's what he's saying. Free access to the tree of life in paradise. You know, the last place that the tree of life is mentioned is in Genesis 3. It's in the garden before the fall. And it's mentioned again in Revelation 22.2 in the New Jerusalem. Genesis 3, Revelation 22.2 in here. The last place we see it in the Bible before this promise, in Revelation 2, there's a flaming sword keeping man from it because of their sin. Sin separates you from God and His good gifts. But Christ has conquered sin and death and hell. And He can remove the flaming sword between you and God. Jesus says you, you can face God's flaming sword... Or you can come to God's cross where he slayed his son in your place. And if you choose his son, then he wants you to work hard. He wants you to labor. And he wants you to, to not cave. He wants you to, to endure and bear up under the pressures of, of the world. He wants you to treasure the truth. He wants you to know it. He wants you to, to labor he wants you to discern error well. And he wants you to have fervent love. The fervent love of Christ flowing in your heart. And what Christ promises is access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's the promise of heaven and all the blessings of heaven. I have no idea what that place is going to be like. I, I read what the Bible tells me about it, just like you do. I get little glimpses, like you do, of what it's like to be in intimate fellowship with the Lord. When I'm there, I don't want to leave. Um, I know the common graces and the joys of life. I know what it's like to taste a good meal, to be with your family, see the birth of a child, hold your grandson, to love your wife warm summer day. Those are common graces from the Lord. You may have experienced some of those and not even be saved. I mean, what will heaven be like? Not just those things all the time. I mean, it's going to be something that's incomprehensible. Eyes not seen. Ears not heard. Hasn't entered into your mind. But I can tell you one thing. Whatever it will be is going to be amazing. And it's going to be nothing like this place here. It's our home. This is not our home. That's our home. And I'm not ready to go home yet. I mean, if the Lord would take me home, I'm ready to see him face to face. But I want to stay in labor for the Lord and discern doctrine and error. And I want to love the Lord in that process. I hope you do too. Do you? If not, you can change directions this morning. The Lord lays it out here plain as day and offers it as you begin a new year. Two by your heads, let's pray. Something about things new. The Bible even tells us to forget those things which are behind. 
look forward, not backward. But you've got to deal with what's backwards first. And there's only one place you can deal with that, and that's the cross. You know Christ? You love his truth? Do you love it more than, than being right? You hate sin? Do you love it more than your comfort? Do you love God and love others with the love that you once had when, when all you had was to, to cling to Jesus? If you don't, then remember, repent, and do the works of a lover of God and man. If you've never come to Christ, you don't have to know anything. You just have to know that you're not right with Him and that He's promised. If you'll trust in Him, He'll help you. And I pray you would today. Heavenly Father, I come before you and I give you thanks for your word and for all that you have taught me recently and taught us this morning. I do pray for anyone who does not know Jesus, someone who may have walked with him at one point, who has fallen away. May this message this morning remind them how much you love them, how much you'll help them, and how much they need to repent. Would you help us, Lord, if we're doing all the right things, but some of that love is drained out, would you bring us back to the love that we had to begin with? In Jesus' name. Amen.